Welcome to How to Live Cancer-Free with Bill Henderson, best-selling author of three books on healing cancer successfully. Now, here's Bill Henderson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to How to Live Cancer-Free today. Introducing today the cancer, the How to Live Cancer-Free show will be Brad Saul. Brad is the president of Matrix Media, which is uh, a company that owns, among other things, web talk radio and, and lots of radio stations around the country. Uh, Brad has been a pioneer in the radio business for a long, long time and knows a lot of things of interest to you. So I would suggest you listen to him carefully, and I'll be back shortly. Over the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about clinical trials. Now, Clinical trials are for lots of different things, not just for drugs, for example. As you recall, we talked about a clinical trial just a couple of weeks ago for flaxseed oil. But, you know, understanding what a clinical trial is and how they work is really important. The National Cancer Institute has over 8,000 clinical trials that are now accepting participants. Most of the material you'll hear about today comes directly from their website, and the information is simple to understand, it's well-organized, and it will give you a good introduction to the ins and outs of clinical trials. Clinical trials are essentially research studies. They're research studies that involve people. Before any clinical trial can begin, it's got to be preceded by years of research to meet a really rigorous standard. Clinical trials are available for cancers at just about every stage. That's despite what most people might think. Most people might think, too, that only those in late stages of cancer can participate, but that's absolutely wrong. Every clinical trial has a detailed plan. It describes what's going to be looked at and how it's going to be looked at and what the endpoint is supposed to be. The protocol includes things like guidelines for who can participate in the clinical trial, and they're going to ask the type of cancer you have, what stage your cancer is in, what kind of a therapy have you received to date, what your medical history was and is, how old you are, and, and your current health status in general. They can take place, clinical trials can, just about anywhere, in a hospital, in a medical center, at a cancer treatment facility, and even in a doctor's office. There may be one or many trials going on all at the same time, even for the same treatment. Clinical trials for cancers include both for prevention, for screening, and treatment too. New drugs or vaccines may be tested, or a trial might involve testing cancer cells for specific changes in certain genes or proteins too. Healthy participants are used in conventional trials which might study whether exercise prevents cancer or whether taking a dietary supplement could lower the risk of cancer, certain types, I should say. Screening for clinical trials is meant to find new methods of detecting cancer at the earliest of stages. There are also quality-of-life trials, and those are meant to find ways to improve the quality of daily living for cancer patients of all stages as well. Probably the thing that's most important to you, though, are 
the new clinical trials for new cancer treatments. These are done in a series of steps, and they're called phases. Phase one typically involves only 15 to 30 patients, and it's designed to find out whether or not a particular treatment is safe, whether it's got bad side effects, and what it might do to you while you're taking it. In phase two, usually it's less than about 100 people, and those 100 people are used to determine if the new treatment has an effect on a particular type of cancer and what the impact of that treatment might be on the human body. In phase three, trials there involve anywhere from 100 to several thousand participants, and many times in multiple locations, too. They seek to determine if the treatment works better than whatever is being offered as the current standard. The sheer size of phase three trials also helps find out whether the results are valid. And phase three trials are always done against a control group that'll receive a placebo or a non-working form of a particular drug. Placebos are rarely used in early stage clinical trials and they're rarely used in late-stage cancer trials, too, primarily because the idea is to bring them to market as quickly as possible. You'll always be told if a particular study is using a placebo, and you will not know whether or not you're getting the real drug or the fake drug if you do. For more information on any of these clinical trials, you want to go to the National Cancer Institute website. Not a hard URL at all. It's cancer.gov. That's cancer.gov. And you'll find a button there that says clinical trials. Click on it. Read through everything that's there. If you find something that might be of interest to you, talk it over with your family. Talk it over with your doctor and see if it might make sense for you. Now, one thing to be sure of, if there are trials going on for things like chemotherapy or radiation, or any of the kinds of things that you know from listening to this show are going to do you more harm than good, those are the ones to stay away from. Look for trials that involve things like dietary supplements such as flaxseed oil, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, or plant-based or vegetation-based kinds of drugs. Those are the things that may not only help your cancer so you can get cancer-free, but may also improve your daily quality of life. That's Cancer in the News for this week. I'm Brad Saul. Bill, back to you. Well, hello, folks. It's Bill Henderson again with How to Live Cancer-Free on webtalkradio.net, where we try each week to bring you information that will help you heal your cancer if you've got it or avoid it completely if you don't. And we're hoping everyone's enjoying a brand-new 2011 and that this will be one of the finest years for you health-wise and in every other way. Uh, because it's it's looking somewhat grim in the future for economic reasons, etc. But uh, all of us have the ability to, to handle our own happiness and, and health, and we need to pay attention to that and take responsibility for it, and that's one of the major messages that I try to pass to people every day. We have uh, an interesting guest for you in the second half of the show. It's a lady named Cherie Nobbs who has written a book on... Uh, helping cancer patients heal because she is 
a surviving member of a couple that uh, the husband got cancer and passed away about uh, a little over two years ago. And uh, Sherry in this book is trying to share with you her experience, both uh, helping her husband and, and what happened to him, but also trying to help you to become a better caregiver, if you will. The book is called Cancer Journey Handbook, and it's inexpensive. She's in Australia, and it's available on a website, which you'll hear about in the second half of the show. Uh, this is a very, very interesting book. I think you'll like Sherry, and I certainly did. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to her. So stay tuned. <clears throat> if you want to learn about me, of course, uh, there's a website called beating-cancer-gently.com where you'll learn lots of information about <clears throat> cancer and about me. <clears throat> a lot of free information there that you can read anytime. About two years worth of my newsletters, <clears throat> which are designed to update the book that I've currently got uh, for sale there, the Cancer Free Book. Uh, you can read that book, of course, as an e-book, download it immediately, <clears throat> or buy it in a, a paperback and have it shipped to you. It takes about a week or so. Uh, it's possible, of course, to buy from the publisher both the ebook and the paperback, so you get it immediately, and then you get the, the copy you can hold in your lap a few days later. But uh, take a look at that website if you're interested in, in uh, my book or in a lot of free information about why I feel cancer is quite healable and that you are the primary one that is involved in that healing, not the doctor's. Only you can heal yourself. Try and, and understand that and learn more about it. And that's what I'm here to, to try and help you do. Well, before we get into some cancer in the news, we have uh, a sponsor that I have some new information for you on. And uh, it's very interesting. This particular company has been a sponsor of this show for some time. And most of you know the, the lady that ran the, the company named Phyllis Pipkin. Well, Phyllis has decided to move out on her own and start her own company. She calls it Ancient Elements, uh, the five ancient elements of health, earth, water, fire, etc. And she has taken on the uh, products that were being sold by Better Way Health and, she, and the people at Transfer Point now uh, endorse her as their primary distributor of things like the beta-1-3-D glucan that I recommend in my book for immune system boosting. Most of you probably know Phyllis if you've been buying products from her because she's been the one answering the phone and giving you information for a long time. And I want you to take a look at, at her new website. It's called ancient5.com, the number 5, not the not F-I-V-E, but 5, A-N-C-I-E-N-T 5.com. And you can call her in Atlanta. She's still in, in Marietta, Georgia, which is a, a suburb of Atlanta. Uh, you can call her at 855, which is a toll-free number, by the way, 855-877-8220. If you're outside the United States, she will ship anywhere in the world, just like she used to do at Better Way Health. Uh, the, the number from outside the United States is area 678-653-8532. And you'll be pleasantly surprised at the prices that Phyllis is charging for the same products that she was selling before. Uh, the prices are considerably cheaper. So be sure and take a look at the website if you're about to order some more beta-glucan or if you've never tried it. Uh, you can certainly get uh, the best possible price from Phyllis. 
and tell her I sent you, by the way. She's uh, enjoying her uh, entrepreneurship in a new business, and I want her to be successful because she deserves it. This lady cares about your health, and she will help you in any way she can. Well, cancer in the news. Those of you in Europe are probably somewhat familiar because I've been talking about it for years if you've been reading my newsletter and so on. Uh, with the subject of Codex Alimentarius, it's basically a set of laws passed by the European Parliament back in 2004 that limited the access of members of the EU, countries in Europe, about 15 different countries, uh, to vitamins and minerals, supplements basically, uh, with the idea of controlling the access to them in adequate amounts so that uh, the drug companies would not have as much competition. And believe me, this is the, the basis for all of the, the laws that are, are so-called Codex Alimentarius. What that term stands for is a 1965 uh, suggestion from the United Nations that countries try to, to standardize their, their uh, rules about food, sanitation, etc which was not a bad idea. There was nothing mandatory about it, but countries have tried to do that. But what Euro the European Union did back in 2004, under the influence of some very, very high members of the uh, drug mafia, what, what I guess you'd call Big Pharma, uh, these are international companies, uh, and there are lots of them. And they have lobbyists who have lobbied the United States Congress for many years uh, in numbers far larger than any other industry, but they've also lobbied all the governments in Europe. And so when the European Parliament started, these people uh, influenced them tremendously with a lot of money and a lot of uh, effort. And just by helping people get on the uh, boards of the European Parliament who were sympathetic to drugs. And one of the things drug companies always want to do is limit the competition from natural substances that cost a lot less, work a lot better, and don't have side effects. And they've tried to do that in a lot of different ways over the years. Well, one of the ways they've succeeded pretty much is in Europe uh, with the European Union Parliament. And that law in 2004 has been gradually implemented by various countries in the EU over the years, restricting the, uh, the dosage and the amounts available of vitamins and minerals. Well, coming up in April of this year, the restrictions will ex expand to herbs, and all types of herbs will be greatly restricted that are not so restricted now. You're going to hear more about this but I, I suggest that you get involved and get informed about it if you're in Europe. Of course, we're hoping against hope that this same restriction doesn't uh, catch on in the United States. There's been a lot of attempts by uh, legislators and the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, here in the United States to try and implement a similar policy here. But so far, uh, the people have raised up against it to the extent that uh, the Congress has not felt that they could get by with with going along with the pharmaceutical companies along this line. So we have a little more access here in the United States than most European countries do to vitamins, minerals, and other supplements. But what's going to be banned are things like uh, ashwagandha, 
Cascara Sagrada, uh, Powderco, Skullcap, Horny Goatweed, all kinds of things that people are taking more or less freely now in Europe. They're going to be restricted. And in order to continue selling them, uh, the, the uh, retailers or somebody has to apply for a license. Well, the cost of doing that is rather prohibitive because none of these can be patented, of course, like uh, drugs can. Uh, so there is no real return on the amount of, that has to be invested to get them approved by somebody in order to license them to be sold. So in effect, the regulations are going to restrict the access of Europeans to all kinds of herbs fairly quickly in April of this year, as a matter of fact. So what I, I want to urge you to do is look into helping an organization that is trying to stave this off now. It's called the Alliance for Natural Health, and it's a European uh, version of this organization, which also has a, uh, a group in the United States. But uh, the European version you can find online at a website, which is ANH, that stands for Alliance for Natural Health, anh-europe.org, anh-europe, e-u-r-o-p-e dot o-r-g. Take a look at that one. They have a petition going on there, which they're trying to get uh, signatures on and get you to help them uh, urge the European Parliament to not restrict any further Europeans' access to natural healing substances, which of course is a very worthwhile cause. And all of you who are interested in these things and are taking them now, and there are millions of Europeans that take lots of herbs now, need to wake up and be, be aware that your voice is the only way this is going to be headed off. Now admittedly, uh, for instance, Dr. Matthias Rath has been trying as a, a German doctor to head this off for many years. He is a holistic physician in, in Germany, a very prominent one. And he claims that back in the early 2002 or three, when this was being considered first in the European Parliament, that he gathered something like 600 million signatures uh, on petitions to stop it and was still unsuccessful. So I'm not sure how successful this will be, but it is certainly worth your exploring. So take a look at the website, which is anh-europe.org. I think you'll be amazed at, at what's happening there and possibly able to help head it off if that's possible. Well, another item that came up here that I found very interesting for a number of reasons, some of which uh, some of you will already be aware of, is a discussion in Natural News about the mercury amalgam issue. Mercury amalgams have been around for about a hundred years or more and used by dentists because they're very convenient, uh, they're very inexpensive, and they're, they're trained to use these in fillings. Why? Well, because uh, mercury amalgam, which is called silver fillings, by the way, uh, and there's maybe 20% silver, but there's about 51% mercury in this in the amalgams that are put into silver fillings. And of course, it is a very toxic substance. And there's lots of, of restrictions about how mercury can be used and, and put into the, the uh, water supply and disposed of and so on. It's a very dangerous substance, uh, probably the second most dangerous to something that is not radioactive. 
but mercury in your mouth, according to the American Dental Association, is perfectly safe. Now, how on earth could that be? Putting something in your mouth that has to be disposed of as a hazardous material when it is handled. Uh, is, does this make any sense at all? My personal experience here, and I'll cover this briefly with you, I, I've had my mouth cleaned up back in July, as many of you know, where I had 12 mercury amalgam fillings in my mouth, five of which were under gold crowns that I was not even aware of, that the mercury had been there for many years. Since my 20s, probably, when I had a lot of problems with uh, with dental cavities and what have you, uh, so the mercury had been there for a long time. In July, a wonderful dentist named Dr. Stewart, not only in Texas, replaced the mercury amalgam fillings for me with uh, a substance that is very safe in my mouth, and, and my mouth is finally cleaned up for the first time in my life, literally. And of course, I'm going to be 79 here in a couple of weeks, so it's, I've been under mercury and the influences of it for quite a while. It seems to have affected my kidneys, particularly since I found out back in October when I was up at Calgary that my kidneys were pretty weak. And uh, of course, I just had the mercury out a few months before that. And we're in the process uh, of trying to cleanse my body of the mercury uh, that was left behind when the, the teeth were, were gone. Because obviously, obviously, just taking the teeth out doesn't solve this problem. It takes, takes care of the source of the mercury vapor that comes out of the teeth, which is really important. You want to do that as soon as you can. But it also doesn't clean up the entire body. You have to do what's called chelation and detoxing for some period of time, usually months after you get the mercury replaced in your mouth. Uh, you have to clean it out of your organs and your tissues and make sure that it, it actually leaves your body and doesn't just, you know, replace, uh, move from one place to another in your body, which is quite common, by the way, if you're not careful. So you're, it requires some, some good guidance about both how to get this out, the mercury out of your mouth, what to replace it with, and then how to cleanse your body after you've gotten it out and you get better. Uh, my sleeping is better since I had it, had the mercury taken out. I think my kidneys are going to recover here, hopefully. Uh, we're working on with several different substances to, to try and fix that. The other personal experience I've had, which some of you recall, uh, a little about two and a half years ago, and actually in August of 08, my son Don, who was a, a cosmetic dentist, as he called himself in, in uh, Los Angeles, passed away at the age of 51 and Don was in very good physical condition except of course being a dentist as he had been for 24 years or so at the time he had uh, accumulated a lot of mercury in his system and I'm pretty sure after all of the information I've gotten after his death that the mercury is what caused it. Uh, the mercury builds up in the liver it uh, spits out blood clots from the spleen not unusual at all and this is what happened to Don. He was in good physical shape, but he started getting swollen uh, legs and the lower part of his leg would swell up because of blood clots. The doctors, and he wanted to listen to the doctors and not to me because I dealt with this same problem myself a, a few years before and I tried to help him, but he wanted to listen to the doctors and they gave him something called heparin, which is a blood thinner 
and it turns out a very, very dangerous drug and one that had killed a number of people uh, before, and uh, of course it led to Don's death in August of 08. So I'm quite familiar with the mercury issue, and I've worked with a lot of people on the phone, people that I, I coach about their cancer, and almost all of them have serious dental toxin problems, one of which, of course, is mercury amalgam fillings. Now, why do, we, why do they still do this to people, uh, even children? Even children nowadays from some dentists, and by the way, about 52% of dentists, I understand, have gone the mercury-free route here and are calling themselves mercury-free, even though their organization, the American Dental Association, is in complete denial that there is any real problem with mercury. Uh, this is unbelievable, but I'm going to recommend to you a, a source here where you can get some information on this and, and get up to speed on this subject because it's really important. Uh, a pregnant woman, for example, with mercury in her in her mouth can pass it on to the fetus, and they've proven this uh, with just testing newborns uh, for mercury, and they found that they have it. If their mom has it, uh, they have it. Obviously, this is not healthy. None of it is healthy, uh, and mercury is extremely toxic. Nobody really denies that, but they say somehow when you put it in your mouth, it stops being toxic, which is absolutely nonsense and has been proven so for a lot of years. Well, in fact, there is an organization apparently who has been doing a lot of work, uh, which I became aware of here uh, recently, a lot of work in the last six or seven years, really, to try and overcome this issue and get the Food and Drug Administration to get realistic about it and ban mercury. Uh, it's been banned by uh, one state and by one city in California not too long ago. But, you know, this is individual governments considering this issue. It needs to be considered nationally. Well, you need to take a look at a, at a website where you'll get a lot of information on this subject, which all of us need to be familiar with, believe me. The, the website is Toxic Teeth, T-O-X-I-C, Teeth, T-E-E-T-H dot O-R-G. This is the website for the consumers for dental choice. And this organization has been working for a long time, about at least seven years or so, to try and get the FDA to get realistic about mercury and ban it, basically, and stop putting it in people's mouths. Well, they've had some progress. In fact, as you'll, you'll see at the website, there's an interesting interview uh, with uh, Dr. Joe Marcola does it with, Dr. with Charlie Jones, who is the the attorney for the uh, Consumers for Dental Choice, and he describes their history of, of trying to get this uh, substance banned. And what they finally did was apparently get uh, a court order in 2008 ordering the FDA, and by the way, uh, banning mercury is supported by President Obama, uh, of all people, but the FDA, of course, operates independently and in bed, of course, with large uh, industry in general. And one of the industries is the producers of amalgams. And this was proven, apparently, because the uh, uh, Charlie Jones's organization, the Consumers for Dental Choice, after a lot of legal work, finally got a judge to order the FDA to change its, you know, to reconsider and change its uh, official position on mercury amalgams 
and the FDA did that in 2008 following the judge's directive. Unfortunately, late that year or early 2009, I'm not sure which, uh, the, uh, after the agreement had been, been uh, implemented by the FDA in a few ways on their website, they changed some things about mercury and so on, a new director, a new commissioner of the FDA was appointed by President Obama. Her name is Margaret Homburg, if you're interested. And I would listen to this interview, if I were you, with uh, Charlie Jones. You'll hear a lot about this. It is very, very interesting because she has basically stopped the implementation of this court order in the FDA. And interestingly enough, she was a member for six years before being appointed of the board of directors of the largest amalgam making company in America. It's called Henry Schein Incorporated. And as a board of director member, Margaret Homburg, now the FDA commissioner, was paid $250,000 a year for six years to sit on the board of directors. And of course, once she got into office, and this is the old swinging door between government uh, officials and industry moguls, uh, once she got into office, of course, she was uh, a, a huge conflict of interest with uh, her government job and her interest in helping her compadres at the Henry Schein Incorporated Company continue to make amalgam fillings, which is the largest amalgam maker in the world. Well, that's the kind of thing that goes on all the time, folks. And if you want to learn about this, go and take a look at ToxicTeeth.org. It will give you an up-to-date version of where we are in terms of uh, mercury amalgams. What they talk about is the <laughs> the Iron Triangle here, which is, of course, the American Dental Association, the State Dental Boards, and the Food and Drug Administration. Those three organizations basically keep this subject from becoming uh, the what it should be, which is a thing of the past. Uh, you know, they'll look back on this 30, 40, 50 years from now, this mercury period and say why on earth did they continue to putting that substance in people's mouths that was making them sick and there is no explanation for that except corporate greed I'm sorry but that's about it so take a look at this get up to speed on it toxicteeth.org you'll find it very interesting I'm sure well I have a couple of other sponsors here other than than uh, Phyllis Pipkin, who I want you to to get to know and, and get her get into her new company and so on, as I mentioned. But uh, I've been working with the people at at Our Health Co-op, which is a wonderfully uh, inexpensive and high quality source of supplements for about eight or nine years now. And these folks are wonderfully uh, interested in helping you with your health. They have had, for ever since I've known them, the least expensive and highest quality supplements available anywhere. And all you have to do is take a look at their website, which is makinghealthaffordable.com. Look up some of the things you're taking now and compare their prices with what you're paying now. And I think you'll see what the, the huge differences are because all of the different supplements, and I recommend a couple of them for cancer patients like Heart Plus and Green Tea Extract for helping stop the spread of cancer. They're, they're super important because they do help your health in lots of different ways. But the prices are unbelievable because everything that 
they sell you has been tested in an independent lab to make sure that it has in it what it says on the container. Well, I don't know of any other supplement uh, supplier that does that, frankly. So, unfortunately, the, the contents of the supplement itself are frequently in question and have been proven to be not accurate. And that's why they do this, basically. They, they keep their overhead down, but one of the things they insist on doing is testing everything that they sell to make sure you get what you're paying for, basically. So to get what they have, go to the website, makinghealthaffordable.com, or you can call their order desk in Florida. It's 1-800-667-0781. Again, outside the United States, they ship everywhere in the world. You can call area 561-863-5300. Tell them I sent you, and they'll maybe give you a little better price. Well, I like barley power, and I take it every morning, as you probably know, and it's a wonderful way to keep my body alkaline, which makes it a, a pretty hostile place to any kind of degenerative condition, uh, not just cancer. But an alkaline body basically cannot grow cancer. Cancer cells just can't live in anything but an acid environment. So many, much of the things that we do to our body cause it to be acid, and most of this is the food, the, the drinks that we drink, uh, the sugar, and so on. All of it turns our body acid, and when we are acid, we are, we are very, very susceptible to things like cancer. So it's important to take this whether or not you have cancer, but certainly if you have cancer, uh, about 18 or 20 of these a day, of these little green pills called barley power, will get your body alkaline again and has healed people of cancer who did nothing else but take these pills. Now, I don't recommend anybody rely on just one thing to get over cancer, but that's what some people have done and it worked. So, hey, this is a powerful substance. It's full of enzymes. It has all 3,000 of the enzymes in the human body that come from these young barley plants where this stuff is, is grown and coal processed into little green pills. So get some of these by all means. It's grown in western Pennsylvania on a beautiful farm up there that I visited. Uh, the phone number to call them is 1-800-358-0777. They're on Eastern Time. Their website is called greensupreme.net. That's the name of the company. And of course they'll take calls from outside the United States because they'll ship it to you anywhere in the world. You can call area 724-946- 9057. Well, stay tuned now, folks. I have a very interesting interview coming up with Sheree Nobbs, and she'll be able to tell you her experience with helping her husband, who did not survive his cancer, but she learned a lot in the process about what works and what doesn't work for cancer, and I think you'll find it very, very interesting. Stay tuned. Well, hello, folks. I'm back, and I have a very interesting guest for you today. Uh, she is from Queensland in Australia, in a, a town called Burnside, which is near Brisbane, Australia. And her name is Cherie Nobbs, N-O-B-B-S, Cherie Nobbs. And Cherie has just published a book, which I think you'll be interested in. Uh, it was published, actually, last year in 2009. But it's called The Cancer Journey Handbook for travelers, carers, and friends. There's no the in front of it. It's just Cancer Journey Handbook for travelers, carers, and friends. And we'll tell you 
how to get a copy of this later because I think you'll be very interested in getting a look at this after you hear from Sherry who has had a very uh, unhappy experience with cancer. Uh, her husband uh, Butch uh, passed away in, in 2008 uh, after a couple of years of pretty much conventional treatment with cancer but in the process Sheree learned a lot not just about cancer and how to deal with it but what uh, the types of things that caregivers and she calls them carers uh, should know in order to help the cancer patient so if you're a caregiver or you have one you might want to let uh, that person listen to this interview if they're not uh, listening to it right now because Sherry has a wonderful collection of information for you that every cancer caregiver should know. Sherry, I am awfully glad you can share with us today because I know this is not easy for you, even even uh, a year or so after your loss. But uh, thank you very much for sharing with our audience today. Well, thank you for talking to me. Well, we're mighty glad to have you. And uh, how are things in Australia today, weather-wise? You're, this is the last day of the year there, I think, is it not? Yes, yes. Um, it's been raining for about two weeks, but today it looks like a promise of a good new year. Oh, great. Okay. Well, and, and it's pretty much uh, summertime there, is it not? Yes. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, a beautiful country. I love Australia. We were down there some years ago and spent a week or so there and, and really loved it and enjoyed the people and I'd love to go back someday. But uh, before we talk about your and Butch's experience with cancer, tell our listeners if you would why you wrote this book, Shuri. Why did you think it was important to write it? Well, during Butch's um, journey, I started writing a book because I had met some carers and I wanted to other people that some of the side effects that they had during the cancer journey as a caregiver were quite normal. Um, I'd, it wasn't until I'd been talking to them that I realised that they were normal and that we all had the same kind of side effects. Oh yeah, yeah. Side the side effects of being a caregiver, I guess. Huh? Yes, yes. Like panic attacks and the, oh my, and and the symptoms that you get that are relative to whatever it is. Your person, your, the person you're with is, is going through. Yeah, so your idea here was to give a, a guide to people who are going through this to understand that their experience is not unusual, that it's, it's pretty yes, much the norm. Sorry. What to expect, right? I, I, um, I looked everywhere for books that would help us during, during Butcher's cancer journey, but yeah. there wasn't anything. Everything was very clinical and and detached and I needed something that addressed the emotional side of what we were going through. Oh yeah, really. That's, that is important and there, I don't know of many other books that do this. Uh, you try to uh, to summarize for the caregiver, you know, how they sh uh, should expect to feel about things but also what to do that is helpful for the, the person with the cancer, the, the loved one if you will. Well, I, um, Butch went through a lot of uh, ex treatment with the conventional cancer doctors in these two years or so. How do you feel about that now, the type of treatment he got? Uh, Butch is 
belief system within the medical system. Yeah. Mine isn't. Yeah, many uh, many people are like him. I mean, it, that's not unusual at all. No. So it was hard for him to look at natural therapies, whereas I look at the treatments he went through and I, I can't see how you can get better when you're being poisoned or burnt or cut open. Yeah, here, here. So you learned that. Uh, during his treatment that uh, that there are many things that doctors do to you that simply make the situation worse, I gather. Is that right? Oh, yes. You know, the um, the, the toxic stuff they put into them and how, how long it takes to bounce back, you know. And, and Butch used to say to me that he, he was just tired of being sick and tired. I'll bet. Yeah, and... Of course, after the original cancer was uh, discovered in his breast, and men do have breast cancers, by the way. Um, I don't know what the number is exactly, but it's it's thousands of men in the United States, and I'm sure in Australia, <coughs> some number there have, have breast cancer every year. Not that unusual, uh, but it did spread later to his brain, did it not? Uh, yes, yeah. um, approximately just over a year later. He started getting a sensation in the back of his neck and had an x-ray, and it turned out that he had a brain tumor. Yeah. And what type of treatment did they do for that? Uh, they they operated on him and, and removed it, and then they did radiotherapy. Okay. Yeah, radiation, as we call it, or radiotherapy, as, as they call it in Australia, and and most of Europe, I guess. Uh, and what was the effect of the of the radiation on his his brain then? Up to about three months after he'd had the radiotherapy, it was around about then that he started um, losing his concept of um, spatial distance. Uh, he um, he became a little confused. Oh. His short term memory loss. He suffered short-term memory loss. Sure. And um, you couldn't, I mean, at his age, which was, uh, what, how old was, was Butch, by the he way? Was, he was 46 at that stage. 46, yeah. You're you're about 50 years old now, you told me. And so he was a relatively young man, at least by my standards, and, and there was no other explanation for this problem that he had uh, with cognitive problems except the, the radiation done on his brain. Is that right? Uh, when Butch had the radiotherapy, he he suffered some terrible burns, you know, on the on because it was on through the back of his head. Oh my! And and the the pain was and the blistering was quite terrible. We used to apply aloe vera on it to try and make it better, but it was very difficult for him to make a decision. And Butch was a very decisive person. <coughs> so, why? <coughs> what do you think? Or did you ever explore with Butch what might have brought this on <clears throat> at that age? I mean, a very young age to get this type of cancer, really. To get the cancer? Yeah. Did what? What did you think caused this? Did you ever d explore that with him at all? Uh, yes, I did. Butch used to work on a kiwi fruit orchard, and we used to have to spray lots of stuff. Okay. And during some during sorry, during kiwi fruit season, he would spray with a hormone, and what what would happen?
if he was down the back. He had to wear a complete zoot suit, you know. Yeah. And the mask and everything. He wasn't allowed to drink for seven days before or after we were on tank water. We had to cut the tank water from the house. Okay. So that it wouldn't affect us. Uh, he, if he was down the back and he forgot his stirring stick, he would put his right arm in and stir it. Oh, I see. Yeah, so you think the toxins were a big deal here, right? Because these were, what, uh, spraying plants with uh, herbicides or pesticides or something? And, and hormones. And hormones, I see. So he was exposed to a lot of toxic stuff then. Uh, yes. And this this was, uh, how long before the cancer was diagnosed was, it, was this exposure? Uh, he would have been in his 30s. Okay. So it would have been several years before the cancer was diagnosed. Yeah. But it can, you know, cancer tumors, as you know, can take years to, to become visible enough to be diagnosed. So it could have very well been a contributing factor to it. Uh, of course, if, as I mentioned to you uh, before we started the interview here, if, if you had come to me and I had talked to you and him about the cancer, we would have discussed the cause of it in some length. And... One of the causes that I've found is so prevalent is dental toxin issues uh, where people have had dental work done, almost any kind of dental work, and it, it creates toxins which uh, are very, very conducive to cancer from my experience. What do you think about that? Did, did he have a lot of dental work done? Yes, he had had a lot of dental work. He had a lot of uh, amalgam fillings. Yeah. So, and I have read about that, and, and I, I can see how there is a parallel there. It makes total sense to me. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, it obviously, can't help Butch at this point, but it might be interesting for you as a, a learning part of this experience here to uh, to keep that in mind, you know, both for you and your family and, and any friends that you can talk to. And it's, uh, it's discussed in a number of different books. Uh, one, of course, is mine, where I talk about it at some length. But it's just something uh, that is so such a common issue. It's unbelievable how many people have uh, serious dental toxin problems that are clearly related to the cancer because they, they get their jaw cleaned up and they get well. It's amazing. Well, one of your first chapters in the book is titled My Cynical View on Cancer Treatment. Tell us what you meant by that. I... When Butch was first diagnosed and we saw his oncologist, he was told that the best thing about being an oncologist is that no two people react the same way to a specific kind of cancer. I see. That it doesn't matter whether you have 10 people with the same one, they'll all react differently. And I could never understand why it was that everybody was treated the same way with the same kind of toxic sludge. Yeah. Yeah, um, very, very interesting. Why do they do that? <clears throat> Seems like they should tailor it a little better, don't you think? Well, I guess they believe they do. You yeah. Know, um, they have a, a specific sludge for each variety of cancer. Mm -hmm. But I can't see how poisoning somebody or nuking them with radiation or cutting bits out of them is going to make a person whole. Yeah, well, yeah, you've got a lot of experience on that, personal experience here, and I, I certainly agree with you uh, 100%. None of those are 
methods of healing. They have to do have, happen to be methods of treatment that are always used by the cancer doctors, but they don't heal people, unfortunately. Uh, you you mentioned in there uh, some experience that you uh, you had or you did some research, I guess, on uh, the success rates of can t certain types of cancer treatment. Could you mention what you found about that? I've got to admit that when I found out, I was shocked that the success rate here in Australia is only 2.3%. Yeah, really? <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, in the United States, there was a, a major study done in the 90s of hundreds of thousands of people, and they found the success rate uh, with chemo was 2.1% here. So the, the studies were about the same, I think. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't like those odds, as I tell people every day. I like something a little more promising than that to, to stake my life on, as it were. Well, you know, after this experience, uh, tell us what you think cancer is, you know, just in your own words. What is cancer? I, I believe cancer is something that's formed within our body because we have low self-esteem, we work in, in um, stressful environments, Right. we live in a petrochemical society and we're water-based so I can't see how that's working well for us Right. Um, I believe a lot of the emotions that we repress mm -hmm. also help towards cancer and I realize the food we eat too because you know there's lots of chemicals and additives not to mention sprays in most of the food we we do eat Right. Which is packaged in nice petrochemical plastic bags. <laughs> well, um, would you would you say that cancer is a symptom, and, and not the really the problem? It's a symptom of an imbalance in in your body, is it not? Oh, I would definitely say it's a symptom of an imbalance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's, that's pretty good. I mean, it, I I mentioned remember reading that in your book, and it, that's a very good description of what it is. It's it's a temporary imbalance in your body that has shown up with an excess number of cancer cells. You know, we all have them every day, as you know, uh, Shereen. And uh, when we get an excess of them, the body has to do something with them, and the immune system has been overwhelmed temporarily, so it puts tissue around them, and we get a tumor. You know, and the docs go bananas, and they try to cut it out and burn it, poison it, whatever, to get rid of it. But it's just a temporary means that the body uses to keep that from spreading around. And if we get our act together and figure out what the imbalance is and fix it, you know, the body is able to handle cancer tumors and get rid of them. You know, that's what it does all the time. It's really amazing. Well, anyway, I don't want to go on about that, but it's uh, very interesting that you came to that conclusion. Folks, I'm talking to a lady named Cherie Nobbs from Brisbane or near Brisbane, Australia, uh, in a, a town called Burnside. And Cherie has had an interesting experience uh, with cancer. She lost her husband here about uh, a little less than two years ago and has written a book about her experience. It's called Cancer Journey Handbook for Travelers, Carers, and Friends. And what Cherie's trying to do is help those of you who have cancer, you or your loved ones, particularly the caregivers, uh, with her experience and it was very very interesting and the book itself is very well written and I, I admire her 
tremendously for putting the effort into trying to pass this message on to other people about what she's learned about what works for helping a cancer patient as a caregiver and also about cancer in general, what they learned about it, she and her husband, in his uh, two years or so experience with cancer. Now you can get the book, and I strongly recommend you do this, by the way, because it's inexpensive and it's very, very useful and helpful. Uh, there's a website. The website is, of course, www, but I'll spell it for you, dot C-N-B-E, that's Coco Nectar Bravo Echo, as we used to say in the Air Force, cnbe1.com and then a forward slash the numbers 001 and then a period html i'll repeat that the website is cnbe1.com forward slash 001.html and sherry you can tell us what cnbe means again what do those letters mean not beating everyone. I like that. And it's not. Uh, it hasn't beaten you. You've learned from it. Uh, you lost your husband, which is very unfortunate. And it's something that takes quite a while to, to get over, certainly. And you've been through the grief process, and you know what that's about. And you describe, describe that in the book and how to, how to cope with it and how to, how to get over this as well as how to deal with it at the time. It's a very, very useful book, and I would strongly recommend everybody get a copy of this, read it carefully, and benefit from Cherie's experience here. That's what she's trying to do is help you. And believe me, I think it will help everyone who reads it. Well, what is some of the best advice you can give a person who is acting as a caregiver for a loved one with cancer, Cherie? What, what would you tell them? My favorite is my toughest lesson, which was remembering it wasn't my journey. Uh, okay. It was all about being supportive and or being the support crew and not about being the dictator. Yeah, yeah, because the person needs to make their own decisions here. And so you need to support those, I guess, is what you're saying. Uh, it's their journey, not yours, as you said. What are some other things that you ran across that uh, you felt would be helpful to other people? I, b I believe that you should uh, make sure that your attitude is positive, that the attitude of, of your GP or specialist is also positive, or your naturopath. Um, and avoid negative people, because yeah. there are a lot of them out there. Oh, I mean, yeah, I know, particularly those that, that work with cancer patients all day, every day. I mean, they can't be anything but negative because they see so many people who don't respond to the treatment they do. I mean, how can you be anything but negative if you're an oncologist? And this is my experience anyway. So, yeah, yeah so you want to avoid those people. Uh, if possible, of course, you want to seek out uh, some kind of holistic physician to help you. Uh, and certainly you want to do some research. Tell us about the type of research you did. It's important to do a lot of research, you know, whether it's going to the library or checking on the internet or whenever Butch was given any medication, I would spend hours going through trying to find out all the side effects and why it was happening and what was going to happen next. Uh, I also believe that following a, a good nutritional diet is really important. 
even though you don't feel like eating when you're going through chemotherapy and, and things like that, it's really important to to maintain a good diet and even a bit of exercise if you can manage it. Sure. Did you get any dietary recommendations from your cancer doctors about what you should feed uh, your husband? It's all I can do not to laugh out loud. They just told him to eat what he felt like eating. They said he would have no appetite, so just eat anything. Anything. Yeah, well, I've heard that so often. <laughs> I was pretty sure that's what you'd heard from the cancer doctors. Whatever you like, you know, eat sugar. Eat yeah. ice cream, you know, Jello, everything, uh, anything you like. Really good for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> they they usually recommend something called Insure. I don't know if they sell that in Australia or not, but it's a sugar water that has some you know some nutrients added to it that the cancer doctors recommend, and that's like pouring gasoline on the flames of the cancer because it's just oh. pure sugar water almost entirely. But they give it to people in hospitals, cancer patients. They gave it to my former wife, Marjorie, when she was in the hospital in the early 90s. And, you know, I didn't know any better. They were feeding her ice cream and steak and potatoes and jello and stuff that is obviously uh, the worst possible thing you can put in your mouth if you have cancer. But that's where we're coming from, folks. We have to be our own nutritionist is what it amounts to and do our own research and certainly don't trust what you hear from the the cancer doctors and nurses because believe me they don't know what they're talking about well what about any other uh, advice for people now the book is obviously uh, fairly it's long enough that you're not going to be able to you know summarize everything in this short interview but I want you to give whatever other advice you feel is is vital to, as far as both helping the cancer patient but also surviving the experience yourself as a caregiver okay well as as a, as a cancer patient I believe the most important thing is your research take the time out to find out all the options and make an informed choice I think that is the most single important thing uh, as a carer I, I believe staying positive is important but not to the detriment of, of hiding everything yeah. uh, as I did. I used to hide in the shower and, and cry because I didn't want Butch to, be, to know that I was feeling uh, less than positive. Yeah. I think it's important to, to maybe share those, those feelings instead of hiding them away. Yeah, I agree. Because it is, it is a shared journey. Sure it is, yeah. And these, you know, you're helping a, a human being, and you know they they need to adapt somewhat to you as the caregiver as well as to themselves. So you know you don't want to be uh, try to be uh, you know a completely neutral person about this. There are obviously emotional issues that come up. So yeah, that's that's important. What about the grief, the after effect here, Sherry? What would you advise people about that? I think it's important to let it out, um, no matter what anybody else tells you, and to do grief your own way. Because uh, even if somebody has, has lost someone and they're the same age or in the same situation as you, they're not you. You're yeah. only going to do it your way. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you've read about you know the five stages of grief. Uh, in, in a book that I've I've read about grief, uh, it didn't 
help me particularly to know about that. You know, I had to work through it in my own way and, and adjust to it and adapt my own uh, life afterwards. And it wasn't easy, certainly, because uh, obviously we lost somebody that we valued tremendously, and uh, it's not easy to adjust to that. Any particular uh, advice about that in general, about how to adjust? I, I think the best thing to do is to allow yourself the time to adjust, because when you lose someone that you love, they're, they're like a part of you, and once once they've gone, you're, you're not that person that you were when you were with them. Yeah. So you have to rediscover who you are, as well as going through the separation process. Yeah, very, very good point. Yeah, you, you really become, again, you become a, a different person after that person's gone. Uh, you have to really evaluate where you are in terms of your future and what you're going to do and really how you can adapt to uh, somebody different now that's lost uh, an important half of their life. Uh, it's really, really difficult. And uh, you've done a pretty good job of it, I think. In fact, uh, this book is one of the more useful things I think I've found for this, uh, working through this process of both helping a loved one with cancer and uh, surviving after the fact of uh, their death, if that occurs, uh, with uh, an adjustment period and becoming, uh, again, a productive and, and useful person and able to handle this. Uh, folks, I'm talking to a lady named Cherie Nobbs from uh, a, a town in Australia called Burnside, which is near Brisbane, Australia, in Queensland. And uh, Cherie lost her, her husband, Butch, uh, about a little over two years ago now and wrote this book in 2009, which I want everyone to read. It's called Cancer Journey Handbook for Travelers, Carers, and Friends. And it is just exactly that. It's a handbook for you if you're helping a person, a loved one with cancer, and you need to read this. Let me give you the website where you can buy it. It is www.cnbe1.com forward slash zero zero one dot html and the html can be in lowercase uh, it's fine the the forward slash of course is important after the dot com so it's cnbe one dot com forward slash zero zero one dot html and what you'll find there is uh, very interesting information about the book but also a way to order it online and to get the book. It's a very interesting uh, book. It's in paperback form. Uh, there's no ebook option, is that right, uh, Sheree? I do have an ebook, yes. You, there is an ebook on there as well that you can download? Okay, so it's available in either form. If you want it right away, just download the ebook and uh, read it. You might want to print it out, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it very much. And and I want to thank you very much, Sheree, for both for writing the book and for sharing with people your experience today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to make something positive out of a negative experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've certainly done that, and I admire you for, for writing this great book, and, and we'll get lots of people to take a look at it. I'll mention it in my newsletter this month as well, and uh, hopefully lots of people will, will buy your book and benefit from it. Thank you, Sheree, and we'll talk to you soon. 
God Thank bless you. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to How to Live Cancer-Free with Bill Henderson.